talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Welcome to episode seven, everyone. Dirty Kurtz Dugout. That's where we are. Come and sit on the pine for a few minutes and listen up. If you listen to the show, not only the first five, but especially episode six, go into the archives and listen. You know that we talked to Don Fear, the former executive director of Major League uh, Baseball Players Association, widely thought to be the strongest union in the country. Of course, Marvin Miller was the first guy to sit in that position. Michael Weiner followed Don Fear. And then a guy by the name of Tony Clark, a former player, is sitting in that seat now. And there's a lot of people questioning the union and what it has done to itself the last several years. There was talk of collusion amongst the owners this spring when over 100 free agents went on sign well into the spring and even days before the season was to begin. And some remain unsigned today or sign minor league contracts just to stay in the game. What has the Players Association done to itself, if anything? Well, we're going to talk to Barry Bloom. Barry Bloom's nationally syndicated columnist and former MLB.com writer who has over 35 years' experience covering sports primarily baseball, and is one of those guys, yeah, he's one of those guys that gets the vote for the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, we want to know what he thinks about what went on this spring and whether or not we're headed towards labor issues between MLB owners and the Major League Baseball Players Association. And back on the show, as promised, is Ballard Smith, former president of the San Diego Padres during the Croc ownership, yeah, it goes back a while, who just happened to serve on the executive committee of Major League Baseball during all the collusion years, 84 through 87. He was right there. At least we think those are all the collusion years. More on that later. But our special guest today, I'm excited about having this guy on. He won both the Rookie of the Year Award and the Cy Young Award when he pitched for the Oakland A's in 1971. I wasn't afraid of him in 1971 because by that time I had faced him in Birmingham in 1969 and Iowa in 1970, so the fright had left me, and I was just numb. This guy was one heck of a pitcher. He's a six-time All-Star, and he's the first of only five pitchers, only five pitchers in Major League history, to ever start the All-Star game for both the American and the National League. And, of course, I'm speaking about Vita Blue. Vita, welcome to Dirty Kurtz Dugout, and thank you so much for joining us. You you make me sound like I'm really from Louisiana. I am from Louisiana, but I don't walk on water, okay? (laughs) Well, are you in Mansfield now? No, I'm in Lake Charles, Louisiana, playing in a celebrity golf tournament, man. That's why I came down. And, and first and foremost, thanks for having me on your show. I appreciate you and what you do, man, for the game of baseball. Hey, it's my pleasure. 
Boy, you know what? I pulled up something today that just blew me away. Oh, boy. Is it something I should get out of jail for? No, 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 no. This is unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, when the, peop- when the people hear this, I, I'm sure that you know this, but when the people hear this, because I have never seen it before, you were responsible for one twelfth. One twelfth. Oh, yeah. Not one two hundred and twentieth or not two hundred and fiftieth. One twelfth of all American League attendance in nineteen seventy one. Yes, I've heard that one. That's pretty good. Uh so should I should I send them my address and ask for a check? Oh my goodness <laughs> great. Well, you did ask for a check, as a matter of fact, that net, that winner uh from and Charlie, Charlie Finley. Said, Charlie said it's nay. <laughs> So Charlie said no, man. No kidding. So he said no to a raise at all. Yes, he did. And uh, well, at that time, Kurt, the the uh, the uh, 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 what am I trying to think of? The uh, free agency was not in in vogue at that time, and uh, you know it was take it or leave it. So you had to take what the, what the team offered you, and uh, you know the reserve clause is what I was trying to think of. And now when right. that came about. I, Obviously, players were able to move to to be free of themselves to go from from team A to team B or the best team or the team that they thought was best suited for them to to play on at that time. And uh, it was I, I'm so glad I played at that time. Uh, you know, the guys in the uh, early fifties and uh, late fifties and sixties played, and but the 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 union got so strong thanks to this guy named Marvin Miller, who I'm so frustrated about the fact that. Uh, MLB, the alumni group, did not vote him into the Hall of Fame back prior to his passing. I, I'm so frustrated with that. And uh, but he's the guy that turned the tide for for the players yesterday and, and the players of today, in my opinion. Remember when he used to walk into spring training with his little oh, briefcase? Oh yeah, he have those meetings, man. You go like, hold. You have those dual meetings with both teams. You go like, this guy's out of his mind. But he, <laughs> but he, he put it out there on the table. He said. He, he made. I remember one thing, one opinion that he gave about the owners. They have two sets of books, kind of like Al Capone. They have their books, then they have this set of books that they want you to see. I remember that like it was yesterday. I'm like, this guy is, is pretty cool. I know, I remember but, uh, that too. And you know what else I remember? The other thing that he said was something that I'll never forget, and it was just like he said it yesterday. Guys, we're going to be tough, and we're going to be united. But we will not kill the goose that laid the golden egg. Golden egg, absolutely. I, I think I remember hearing them say that one too, and that's that's a good thing. Because so, as you both and I know, as being former major league players, like it was a tough road for us at that time. But look at the league the way it is now. And I'm all for you know people ask me all the time, "You wish you making the money?" Yeah, of course I do. But I played when I played, and it is what it is. That's what what else can you do for sure? That's that's the good the best attitude to have. Incidentally, let's yeah, go no back. Kidding. Let's go back to your Oakland A's days. Um, oh, incidentally, uh, you know who I follow and who follows me on Twitter? MC Ham- MC Hammer. The Hammer. The Hammer. You know, I gave him his first boombox. <laughs> you know, I gave him his first boombox. <laughs> Well, the reason, no, you know, I, did, I never played. Call, I, him up, call him up and, and ask him. I gave MC him his first boombox. <laughs> I tell you what, MC, uh, for people that don't know, used to hang around Oakland Coliseum, and he was even the bat boy for the Oakland yeah. A's. 
His brother, his brother Lewis worked in the locker room. His brother Chris was a bad boy. But on, on certain times of the year when Chris, I think Chris played Little League, MC would sit in for Chris, who was the original bad boy. Yeah, so all three of the, the, the Lewis brothers uh, played. Uh, it's, it, was, uh, it was MC, Chris, and uh, who was the third one? MC, Chris. Okay, come on! You now you got me. So I didn't want I didn't want to go off on MC Hammer too long, but he I just uh, I thought I'd mention that because that was the time. His first boombox, I gave him his first boombox, and he was a man. But but at that time, because it was a great time, and I played for the A's, and we had a great success. Obviously, you know, winning three championships in a row, and I was so fortunate to be in the right place at the right time with the lights. Twenty four. Oh yeah, you had some good players. Boy, there were some good players in that minor league system and on that major league team that guys that never really got to the big leagues and did what everybody expected him to do. I mean, I, I remember a guy by the name of Bill McNulty, and then there was another guy, I think he, he got a cup of coffee up in the big leagues by the name of Bobby Brooks. Are you kidding me? You remember Bobby Brooks? Oh, yeah. He played left field for the A's. In, 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 in minor league ball and double and triple A. We played together. And, of course, they had Joe Rudy. Bill McNulty played third base. They had Sal Bando. Phil Garner played second base. They had Dick Green. Uh, Manny Trio played second base. They still had Dick Green. Gene Tennis was catcher. They had Dave Duncan. But Gene Tennis took over the job from Dave Duncan and a guy named Phil Roos. OMG, of course, nobody tried to. Well, we had a guy named Dwayne Anderson who I played with in double and triple A, but who was that shortstop? Burt Campanaris. Yep. So, and, and, and again, let's go back to third base. Chet Lindley, he ended up being traded to, to Detroit. Uh, uh, Disco Dan Ford played left field. Again, you have Joe Rudy in left field. So, uh, that, that was the mainstay of the A's form system right then and there. And the next best thing was clearly saying, if I can make it here, can we just trade me to the next best team? And that's what Charlie Finley did. And that's how most of us got to the big league. Chet Lemon, uh, 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 George Hendricks. You know, uh, George Hendricks played right field. Who was in right field? Reggie Martinez, Mr. October Jackson. <laughs> that's a tough lineup to crack. That was like me coming up through the red system. What about a guy by the name of Pete Kogel? Pete he Rose. was he, Yeah, no kidding. Pete Kogel was a monster. Oh, the big left fielder, yeah. Oh my oh, the goodness, big, big left fielder, yeah. He was, he was, he was yesterday's version of uh, Aaron Judge. That that's exactly right. He was a big, big fella, and boy, he could hit the ball a long way. And the I, fa- I faced you, and I faced you in Birmingham. I faced you in Iowa, and that's where I learned all of those guys' names because I was in awe of all of those players, and I, can, I remember those teams being so good and, you know, just trying to go in and play in a couple of games against you guys and being satisfied going out with two or three hits. And that's yeah, when I thought I, I could think, hit. Kurt, I think what happened was with the, with the major league team being the, at the bottom of the barrel, they got the first picks in the, in the, in the draft, and uh, that's how all of us become, uh, became open A's, uh, uh, A's form hands. And we worked our way up through the, through the form system. So, but that's how that all compiled to be the way it was. But again, there were some great players that I played with at, at the double A, triple A level, and obviously at the major league level. But those guys were 
pretty solid, and they were they. I don't know what the talent pool was like at that time, and how they judged by exit velocity and all that stuff. But all I know is that these guys were from Arizona State and this school and that school, and uh, they had some credibility. And the coaches gave them some good uh, trio uh, credibility as far as uh, them being able to play and go to the next level. And that's that's what counted. Boy, that was some kind of organization back then. You got to give Charlie Finley a lot of credit. I tell you what, Charlie might not have offered you a raise after that rookie season where you went 24 and 8, had 24 complete games and pitched over 300 innings. 24, yeah. Think about that, everybody listening that watches baseball now. 24 complete games. <laughs> 24 complete games. That's, that's amazing. But he did offer you could, money. I could have. I could have pitched, pitched half those got to, and asked for the same money, though. <laughs> that's that's a good thing. That's a good way to live. Keep keep hey, it up, hey, my friend. Kids, and we'll... how, how'd your kids doing this past weekend? How, how's the, they had games this weekend? How are your kids He's doing? He's doing okay. They, they've got a big doubleheader coming up on Saturday that I'm looking forward to. So and, uh, uh, their team's they, playing good. There's, he's swinging the bat well. So um, uh, He faced a tough left-hander last week. Oh, kind of like you and I, right? Yeah, a little, little sidearm and slinger. No, he's <laughs> hey, a, he man. wasn't over the top like you were. This guy came from three quarters. From down Australia, down, down under. <laughs> hey, Kurt, yeah. thanks for having me on, sir, and I appreciate you reciprocating and come back on our show. And Bill and I would love to have you on any time that we can get you on, and we appreciate your support, okay? I'll do that, Vita, and what he's talking about, everyone. Thank you so much again. Uh, Bill Lasky and uh, Vita Blue do a show up in San Francisco for the Giants. Uh, it is a great show. I was on there a few weeks ago and uh, talked to Vita about coming on uh, my podcast right here, and there you go. You got him. Well, I promised to Barry Bloom back. He's been a national reporter for MLB.com. He's got more than 35 years' experience covering sports, mostly baseball. He writes for Forbes.com, and I've been giving Barry crap for a long time long time we won't even talk about it because we're good friends now i appreciate him but i had to have him back on the show for a couple of reasons and we'll get into it barry welcome to the show thank you for coming back to dirty kurt's dugout how are you sir i'm good how are you so i i understand you just took a drive in from arizona yeah i did very nice well yeah i bet (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I bet you want to sit down and rest right now. I appreciate yeah, I appreciate you coming on, but I'm glad that are you, you recording, are. Are you recording now, or are we we on, or uh, are we just shooting the uh, the the, the, the no, bull here? We're always on. You we're know, you on. know, I'm okay. always on stage, right? Well, I always. I just it reminded me of the time that. When I was covering the team that you guys were driving back from Phoenix, from Yuma to Phoenix, and I think uh, you blew a tire out on eight. Mm-hmm. And Bob Chandler told me that you were going faster going backwards, and he was going forward. He was right behind you. <laughs> yeah, that was. That uh, yeah, that was a hairy. That was a hairy <laughs> incident. Boach and I were in the car. Oh, geez. that's a true story. The, we blew the future manager of the Padres and the Giants. We blew uh we blew a right front tire going uh I think Boach said we were going 140. <laughs> I don't know if that's a true story. But the pod, the San Diego Padres, Barry, of course you're still writing for things, but an odd 
an odd column, I call it, only because of the magazine that it's in. You're writing for Forbes.com, and when I think of Forbes, I think of finances. And, of course, your first article that I read was about the finances of the San Diego Padres. But you also touched on quite a few things. And I happened to read this when the ball club was in Arizona playing against the D-backs, and something almost happened in that series that has never happened in Padre history. And, of course, it was a no-hitter. There's one other thing that's never happened. They've never won a World Series. But that night, you were at the ballpark. Was the vibe different to you than a normal situation of a major league manager? Do you think Andy Green pushed the envelope a little bit as far as Tyson Ross was concerned because of the history of the ball club? Well, no doubt. I mean, he said that, and I wrote that, and, you know, uh, and the vibe was, I mean, let's put it this way. Here's the funny thing about it. Tori Lovello, the manager, the Diamondbacks, you know, a couple of days later, I went over to him and I said, did you know what was going on in the Padre dugout? And did you know the importance of what was going on in that game Friday night? And he said, no, tell me. And Tori had no idea that this would have been the first, you know, uh, no-hitter in Padre history. And so, he, he, you know, I was telling him about it and that, you know, for somebody like me who's covered the team since, like, the 70s, you know, it's like I've been waiting for this. And it was it was it, it, nail-biting, you know, for me. It was nail-biting for Leitner. It was nail-biting for anybody who's around the ball club and knows all this. But the, Padre, the Diamondbacks were completely uh, oblivious. So, you know, aside from the notion that in the crowd, obviously they were watching a no-hitter, I don't think most people, because it wasn't in San Diego, knew what was going on, you know, as far as it being uh, that epic. But as far as what was going on in the Padre dugout and what was going on with people who knew the Padres in the Padre broadcast booth, you know, it was a pretty, uh, pretty interesting night. And, you know, once again, you know, I, I, you know, very – heartbreaking to me i mean uh you know i was there also in 2006 i think it was when chris young took a no-hitter into the ninth inning at petco got the first out walked the guy and joe randa of the pirates broke it up with a home run and that's the closest the Padres ever come in history and this is the closest they've come since then and i was covering both games so i feel like i'm kind of destined to see that no-hitter but, you know, I don't know if I, if, if, if I ever will. I mean, I know both Leitner and I have seen more Padre games than anybody, certainly anybody in the organization now. You know, we're both heartbroken that he didn't get to know him. And I think Tyson Ross has been a, a pleasant surprise uh, for the San Diego Ball Club. But if you look out throughout the league, uh, who do you think has been the biggest surprise, uh, positive-wise, and also on the negative side, maybe in all of baseball, not just the National League, but both the National and the American League? Well, you know, as far as surprises go, you know, when I wrote my uh, predictions on the season, you know, one thing I pointed out that, you know, essentially the same 10 teams that were really good last year are pretty much the same 10 teams that are really good this year. And, you know, and, and there's always anomalies. And last year, 
It was the Diamondbacks who nobody counted on in the National League and the American League. It was the Twins. This year I picked both the Phillies and the Angels to be those anomalies. And thus far, both are having really good seasons so far. They both had really good months of April. So to me, those are the surprises, even though they were predictive surprises with, you know, the young people who were developing, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, certainly with Otani coming to, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, the Angels along with Cozart and Kinsler and a healthy, you know, pool halls coming back this year, uh, you know, always Trout. I mean, they were they were pretty well retooled. So I thought, you know, those were the, the, the two biggest. And I think, you know, the, the biggest disappointment was predictable, too, that you have at least, you know, you look at the standings, and there are at least a team or two in each division that are done already this year. They're not coming back. They have no heartbeat. You know, you start with the Padres because they're not going anywhere. You, you, you know, the Reds are not going anywhere. The Marlins are not going anywhere. The Rays, the White Sox, uh, Kansas City. I mean, really, it, 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 it's pretty atrocious that you could get to one-third of the teams in baseball are, are, are good, one-third of the teams in baseball are in no man's land, and the other ten you know, are just mediocre. It's just where we are. And you know what? You've been around this game long enough to have seen the changes that have gone on to put all of the teams in the position that you just talked about. Where do you think the game is now as far as growth is concerned? And do you see any problems on the horizon during the next collective bargaining agreement? I think the game is stagnant right now. I mean, basically, you know, when – Bud Selig left as commissioner. There was about ten million, million billion dollars in, in gross revenue coming in. You know, I think it's it, it's similar. It's it's grown just a little, but it, it's basically the, the, where where it is. And, and 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 the money is distributed well enough that there should be no team in baseball that's losing money at this point, because you have enough revenue sharing money, you have enough national television money that it should all take care of itself. But I think where and why you're having such a, a tough time here with these rule changes and Commissioner Manfred, and, and, and he's right in some ways, you know, he, he sees a problem, particularly with the game, not as it appears in the stadium, because, you know, I was at a press conference in spring training where he said, the issue is not the game in the stadium because there's plenty of stuff to do in the stadium, you know, because the tickets are so expensive. Now it's valuated entertainment everywhere. If you don't want to pay attention to the baseball game, there's plenty of stuff in the stadium to do the, and then, but the problem is watching it on TV, you know, like two nights ago, you know, I, I was out and I wanted to watch Otani's game against the, uh, the Astros and Morton and Otani, they both walked like 10 guys between them, five each. I mean, every pitch was tedious. Every pitch was slow. So much of this now, and, and you were around, I, 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 I joked with, 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 uh, with Jonesy about this. Now I covered the one hour and 25 minute Randy Joe's 
Jones Cut game that was that was 40 years ago. And, you know, it, it was a 3-1 game. It wasn't like there was no scoring in it. But every time they got the ball, they, they took the ball and they threw strikes. And, and I saw a game, uh, you know, the game on that we were talking about, there was not the game we were talking about, but there was earlier in that week of the no-hitter, the near-no-hitter with Ross. On Monday, there was a near-no-hitter that Corbin threw. And that was Cueto and Corbin. And, and, and when they got the ball, they threw it. They threw strikes. And, and the game was one nothing. Corbin lost the no-hitter in the eighth inning. Cueto pitched a two-hitter. It wound up uh, being two hours and 25 minutes. That's the recipe. Get the ball and throw strikes. And get the ball and throw it quickly. And until they get to a point where they can get every pitcher on a pace to do this, they're going to be having all these problems. And so it becomes a drag to watch the game on TV. I mean, it was a drag watching that. As great as Otani was, you know, his numbers weren't great that night. But, gee, I mean, the guy threw 30% of his pitches over 95 miles an hour. His fastball was fantastic. You know, he threw six over 100 two at 101 to Josh Reddick on different at-bats. I mean, when he was throwing the ball, it was fun to watch. But he couldn't get, couldn't locate his breaking pitches. He was throwing balls in the dirt. He was taking 20 seconds or 25 seconds in between each pitch. And it, 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 and it was horrible to sit there and watch the whole thing without anything else to do but go up out and get a beer or drink of water. So, you know, so I think there, yeah, there are, are, there are, there are problems. And I think there are problems in the way teams are spending money and the way they're allocating their money. You know, when you have uh, teams like the Yankees and Dodgers and Giants who are more intent on ducking below the salary cap threshold this year than they were to add the extra players on the team they needed to win, you have a problem because free agents aren't going to be signed. And I don't think that was the nature of what they expected to have happen in this system, you know, at the time. So, it's you know, I think you, you will have trouble or you will have issues when you get to the next collective bargaining agreement after the 2021 season if it doesn't rectify itself in the meantime. Well, it's certainly going to be interesting, and it's uh, it's also interesting to know, based on uh, the things that you were just throwing out, about the time of the game and the in the first pitch being the best pitch in the count for major league hitters to hit. The, the first pitch is actually the highest average pitch that major league hitters have, but yet you're seeing hitters work counts to three and two a lot because hitters get or pitchers get cute when they get a hitter zero and two or one and two, and they work the count to three and two, and then they strike them out because the strikeouts are crazy. I mean, the number of strikeouts that are going on in Major League Baseball right now are the thing that's really weighing the time of the game down, in my estimation. Well, it's three things, and it's you know the you know, what they call like the only true aspects of the game where, you know, walks, home runs, and strikeouts dominate the game. And in two of those areas, you're never putting the ball in play. And that, that's a huge problem for the game. You yes, know, it is. And even the home run, which everybody loves, you're, you're putting the ball in play, but it doesn't do anything but go out. So the you know the, the you know the, the 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 situation with it 
uh, is pretty extreme. And if you look at the analytics of, and it's a game that's based on analytics, even though the you may say the first pitch is the best pitch for a hitter to hit, if he doesn't swing at that pitch and it's strike one, his ability to put the ball in play or, you know, uh, or get a hit diminishes extremely with every pitch as you get deeper into the count. So if you're, if you're 0 and 1 or 0 and 2, the batting average against those pitchers goes down to like 100. And conversely, if it goes, if, it, if it's ball one, and every ever and it goes deep into the count, every you, you, the chance of a hitter getting a hit is much greater. Yes, so, it is, and that's for another show. Right. We we can get into those analytics. I'd love to get into those with you because I think one in the one in one count is the most important count of the at bat for a hitter. But I'm going to let you go to dinner. We're going to leave that for another show, Barry. I appreciate you coming on. When uh, if people uh, want to follow you, where do they go to, Barry? Well, on Twitter, um, at Boomstick, B O O M S K I E, and uh, you know, as you were saying, coming in. You know, the Forbes thing is not necessarily, you know, they're asking me to write a baseball column. And some of it can be business-oriented, but some of it can be straight baseball, too. Like the Otani column I wrote yesterday was a straight baseball column. And so, you know, I have the ability, really, there's a wide uh, breadth for, for me to write stuff about and, 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 and about anybody in the league or any place in the league, anything that moves me or is newsworthy. So, and, and that would be, you know, Forbes.com. And really the easiest way to do that is if you go to Google and put in Barry M. Bloom and Forbes, you're going to get my column page. That's going to be the top thing on Google because they're very oriented to this. Well, I'm going to so, go there because I want to see what you wrote about Otani. I knew you were bad-mouthing him at the beginning of spring. I was going to get on well, you a little bit for that, but I won't. But everybody was. I tell you what, everybody, he was a question mark leaving spring training. He really was. I'll be interested in what your take is on that because, you know, I did spent a lot of this column explaining that. Good. I can't wait to read it. Barry Bloom, I appreciate it. Enjoy your time in San Diego, and we will talk again soon. All right. See you soon. Bye. Thank you, Barry. Well, I promised you Ballard Smith back, and we got him. Served on the executive committee of Major League Baseball from 1984 to 1987. Right smack dab in the middle of all of those years of collusion that the owners paid up for. Big time money, $280 million, as a matter of fact. And I got a check. Um, sorry to say that it wasn't as much as I wanted, but it was a check just the same. Because I was a free agent after the 85 season. Ballard, welcome back to the show. I appreciate it. Ballard, are you there? I am here. There you are. Thank you for coming back. I appreciate it. You're welcome. So if it wasn't for collusion, how much would I have made in that three-year contract that you probably would have signed me for? <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. You don't have to come up with a number. Don't embarrass me. What? You would have made less because maybe we would have had to spend more money on other people. Yeah, that's true. We were uh, getting some good players at that time. Ballard, of course, uh, was at the helm, was the president of the San Diego Padres during the years that they acquired Steve Garvey, Goose Gossage, Greg Nettles, 
Lamar Hoyt. We had some pretty good ball clubs. How disappointed were you when that ball club from 1984 didn't repeat in 1985? I was very disappointed. I, I think we had reason to believe that we'd be better. Um, just, for example, look at the outfield. The outfield was young. So you had there was reason to believe that they uh, it should be better. Uh, pitching staff was relatively young, so it looked like we'd be better. And then we we had um, um, acquired uh, Lamar Hoyt, uh, who'd been pretty successful with the White Sox. So it was certainly uh, it was certainly very disappointing. Well, one of the reasons. Um, firmly on the back of uh, the player that that screwed up was uh, Alan Wiggins going on a little binge when we went up to L.A. one time. I'm not going to put the total blame on him, but it certainly uh, threw the club for a little bit of a spin. And uh, we didn't seem to be able to regain uh, the drive that we were having at that time without him in the lineup, and it was – it really was a, a letdown for us. But the thing that I've always wondered is how Dick Williams got fired after that year with being so successful for the three years that he was here. Well, Kurt, let me, let me just talk about the Wiggins thing just for a second. I, 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 I think Wiggins, Alan Wiggins and him leaving the team is a good example of the importance of um, – what the word is chemistry. Uh, I mean, he, he was certainly uh, uh, a catalyst in that, in that lineup that we weren't able to replace. Um, it, it's, it's really, it's really unfortunate. Um, you know, we had, we had a policy that if you got involved with drugs, the first time we'd try to get you help and you could come back. But if you got, if you got in trouble before, again, then you weren't going to play for the Padres anymore. Um, I mean, I, I I remember well. I was down in the clubhouse working out and got a call from L.A. that nobody knew where Alan Wiggins was. And, you know, it, it, it's sad. It, as it turns out, Correct me if I'm wrong, but he ended up going to Baltimore for a while. But he never he never really was able to produce anymore. And it's just it's an un, it was an unfortunate situation where substance abuse just got the better of him. Um, and uh, I think eventually was a catalyst leading to a a pretty young death death for him. So that that was obviously unfortunate. Um, you know, Dick Williams. So. <laughs> yeah. Dick Williams, our manager. So, in the few years I'd been with the Padres before we hired Dick, we'd gone through several managers. And I I just really came to the conclusion that we needed a proven manager. Now, Dick Dick came with some baggage. Uh, He obviously had been very successful in Boston and Oakland. Um, and he was in, um, Montreal too. So 
when we hired him, I got a call from Charles Bropman, um, who owned the Montreal Expos. And he said, I don't care how successful Dick Williams is with you. You're going to regret the day you hired him. So Dick didn't like to manage with only one year left on his contract. And, um, you know, he really kind of, I, I, I don't know how it was in the clubhouse, but he certainly had kind of warned everybody up in management. You know, just, I don't know, it just wore, wore me out. And he, he just unfortunately had some personal habits that, uh, that weren't very good. Um, it, there'd been an incident involving, um, um, involving his wife and, you know, I just came to the conclusion that he wasn't the type of person that we wanted managing the team. Um, well, those things happen. That, those things happen. Was that, That's... Was, was that the right decision? Should the only thing I have been concerned about is whether he was going to help make the Padres continue to be successful? I don't. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't really have an answer for that. Um, uh, I don't regret the fact that he was there. We went to the World Series. You and I have talked. I, I think you consider him, would I be correct in saying, perhaps the best tactical manager you ever played for? I don't think there's any doubt. So, um, and you know, there was constant conflict between him and Jack McKeon. Jack McKeon wanted to be the be the general manager. Um you know, you you might you might be able to make an argument that, but for the um, some of the personal habits of Dick, it might have been better to get rid of Jack and keep Dick. But uh, um, you know, the decision was made, uh, and um, Mrs. Croc had pretty strong feelings about uh, the type of uh, people she wanted in the organization, which I agreed with. And so the decision was made that, uh, that we'd move on without him. Well, as you know, I had Don fear on episode six and, uh, I talked to, uh, Don about the collusion in baseball during his reign as, uh, the executive director of the major league baseball players association and uh, I want you to hear and listen to uh, a question that I posed to him and his answer. Uh, I think we might just have his answer. But I asked him if he thought that all the collusion uh, that was ruled upon was all that was there. And here was his answer. Oh, you always wonder about that. And there always were isolated examples or two. And you might have had some occasions in which one team talked to another team or something like that. But before the, the first year of what we could call the collusion era, which followed, if my memory serves me right, the 85 season or the 84 season. I, I, it's a long time ago. You're right. Um, it was, a, it was 85 happened, because yeah. I was part of it. Okay. Before that, uh, uh, before that, we never saw in the free agent era, which at that point was less than a decade old, anything like 
the massive change of behavior and the uniform nature of behavior that, that the clubs engaged in. They were clearly all operating from the same script or singing from the same hymnal or how, how, however you want to pronounce it. And the um, uh, overt circumstances were so palpably uniform that it could not have arisen by accident. It could not have arisen by result of economics. It could not have arisen by uh, anything other than some sort of a, of a central plan, even if it wasn't always executed perfectly by all the teams. There you go. So he wasn't sure whether or not there were other forms of collusion going on at other periods of time in the game, because we had talked about this past spring and then going all the way back to that era when you were actually on the executive board an executive committee of Major League Baseball, so you had to know everything that was going on. And you mentioned on the show the last time you were on it, and I said I had to have you back to ask you the question that collusion actually went on before 1984. Well, I don't know what you and Barry Bloom talked about, but he and I are in the process of – Writing a book about the 1984 season. And about your dog that's in the background. <laughs> How's that dog sound? Welcome to the show. He sounds great. <laughs> He's, He's the watchdog. He's sitting up in the uh, window ledge making sure that, um, uh, you know, <clears throat> I'm down here in La Jolla by the beach. It's a pretty unsafe area down here. So oh, you never yeah. Real unsafe. You never know. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me let me just move away a second. But um, um, so Barry you and, and Barry, are, yeah, Barry and I are in the process of um, doing a book about the 1984 season and the building of um, the building of that team and some of the uh, the backstories, which um, I'm um, I'm hopeful that uh, you're going to help us uh, um, remember. Um, so I, I guess. What I'd like to say is that yes or no was there collusion the, the before eighty four? Garvey no? and Gossage would have been difficult in a um, totally normal free situation. market situation. So Steve Garvey signed uh, with the ball club in nineteen eighty three. Yes. Well, we signed. We signed. Uh, well, let's see. We would have signed Steve. What in? Uh, I think we just said, did we sign him in December of um, 82 and then um, yes. or January of January, December or January, January of 83 and then Gossage was January of 84, correct? That's correct. That's correct. Well, I know the Gossage, we know the Gossage deal fell within the collusion times because of uh, the stories with you know, certain individuals that were here in town that were agents of Goose and um, just the goings back and forth of the way uh, the collusion rules were set down by the Major League Baseball players owner and, the, and owners. But the, the other thing that you didn't hear Don say uh, that I posed to him, and he basically came out and said people have told him off the record that there was, in fact, collusion going on. But they wouldn't go on the record and tell him. 
So he's never had anybody in a position of either ownership or running a ball club at that time that's told him on the record that collusion went on. But evidently, some people have told him off the record. And as we know now, he's the executive director of the National Hockey League Players Association, doing a great job bringing his skills there. And because Don helped our association, he really did. And I think you'll even admit um, he wasn't really bad to deal with. Well, I, I've got a tremendous amount of respect for Don. And I I think he carried on for the, uh, you know, obviously incredible job that Marvin Miller did for all of you. And, um, um, you know, there, there's no question that, it, I mean, we all know why the why we ended up with the players union. And that's because there was total lack of total lack of any freedom of movement by players, and uh, uh, which was a totally ridiculous situation. I mean, when I when I was a kid, not only uh, were play were players uh, stuck with whatever club they started with for their whole career unless they were traded, I, uh, the National League and American League didn't make trades between each other. So you were limited to one league unless I, I, I don't, there were some um, waiver rules that you might've ended up in the other league, but players were uh, committed to their team for, for life. And uh, so obviously the players needed a union and they should have, uh, they should have had one. Uh, I mean, I might argue now that the economic situation doesn't, doesn't work too well, but uh, uh, cause I don't think, I don't think it's uh it helps competitive balance and the situation to me is much worse than it was back when I was there because the, the dollars are just so much bigger. Well, there's, I don't think, uh, I don't think many of the major league owners are going to say the situation's worse than it was back then. They're making plenty of money now. And it was like Barry Bloom said, uh, you know, there's a third of the teams that are really bad. There's a, th- a third of the teams that are in the middle. And there's a third of the teams that are really good. And I think that's the sign of the times. I think there was so much in- innocence in our country uh, back uh, when I played and when really the owners dominated the players, just just the way you said, was that really nobody knew about it. I mean, we certainly didn't have the media that we have today for people to become educated. Uh, the way they are. And I guarantee you there's a lot of people out there that uh, are 55 and older that had no idea that once a player signed a contract with a major league team pre-1977, that they were bound to that team for life unless that team decided to release them. And I don't even think any of the players thought much about that when they knew that they were going to sign or wanted to sign a professional contract, I don't really think they thought about it. I know I didn't when I signed originally with the Reds. I didn't think to myself, wow, when I sign this contract, I'm never going to be able to play for another club until the Reds release me. But that's actually the way it was. Ballard, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, You and I have to get together off here someday. Uh, have your fun with Barry while he's here in town. And uh, you and I will talk soon, my friend. Thank you again for coming on. Okay. Good to talk to you. Thank Anytime. you. And and thank that dog for spicing it up a little bit. Episode hey, Matt, 7. Matt, 
Max was doing his job. It's getting dark out. Max. And uh, I'll, I'll come down and talk to your uh, uh, to your grandson here in, in the future real quick. We're going to do it in the next couple of weeks. Okay. Kurt, thanks. Sounds good. Ballard Smith. Episode 7 of Dirty Kurt's Dugout is in the books. We're going to have a, a special little part of this broadcast for our uh, Patreon subscribers. So uh, look on Patreon. Look into the show. It's Dirty Kurt's Dugout. And you'll be surprised at, uh, at some of the offers in the reward program of Patreon. So until next time, everybody, this is Kurt Bavakwa saying good night. Talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning, Hank Aaron was beginning, one Robbie going out.